3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 125. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well that's it, we can do no more. <laughs> the closing time now, the closing date has passed for the Hugo nomination, so we will just have to wait and see what will happen. But that's what my editorial is all going to be about today. I'll give you a little heads up what else is coming in today's show. We have this month's Science News with the amazing Mr. J.J. Campanella. We have a promo from a podcast from Australia, three ladies doing a podcast which is fantastic, so I hope you'll go over there. Got a promo from them, Galactic Suburbia, do listen out for that. Now I don't want to make any claims on Starship so far, but there's there's narrations come and there's narrations go and we've got some fine great narrations on this show. This one, this story is just amazing, so I'll tell you more about them later on but do listen out for that story in this narration it is fantastic just before we get into the editorial don't forget to keep popping over to the front of the website and vote for which story then and now which one you liked about two weeks ago we played two stories please pop over keep that going and we'll see who the winner is of that On to this week's editorial. And really it's just a big thank you to everybody. Do you know what I mean? Everybody. Now the kinda the date is closed. That thirteenth of March was the final day for putting a vote in for the Starship Sova and her, you know. Her bid to kinda of aim for a Hugo Award to be the first podcast ever to be nominated for a Hugo Award. That date's gone and I just honestly I want to say a massive thank you to everybody. You know, first off, Amy brought it to my attention and has been a trooper, you know what I mean? Like just amazing, just promoting Starship over. So and everyone else that did a guest editorial as well, you know, amazing. Larry Santuru, Matt Sambone Smith, Jason Sanford and Merle Lafferty. And it would be nice if I could actually get, I quite like that idea of getting guest editorials on anyways, you know, just kind of let someone else have a little bash and have a little talk, you know what I mean? So if there's anyone out there who thinks want to do a guest editorial, you know, please, by all means. But like I say, the 13th of March has passed now and we're, and we're in like now a little bit of a limbo time. I think everyone will be told whether they've made it or not at the EasterCon, the UK Science Fiction Convention. I think that's going to be the day. I think that's probably round about the 4th of March. I think that's round about the 4th of April, somewhere around there. That's when we, we get to know and we get to find out. Hopefully I can bring you some reports from there as well. Just to you know find out if we did make it, but like again, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone that's been involved in you know putting starships over you know at least getting a name about it and if that if that's it, you know if that's all we've done that is in itself an amazing feat, you know what i mean I'm sure everyone is now <laughs> probably sick to death of like this a Starship over again, but it's just like getting that name out do you know what i mean it's it's opened eyeballs to the you know starships over it's put it in the front of many people, and with that is a great thing in itself. So yes, thank you so much for that. So again, please thank you so much for helping everyone. You know that's helped out. There's been so many blog posts wrote and so many people defending. Do you know what I mean? Because the sharp. Comes times when like people just are negative. You know, out there that oh they're nasty out there. And yet you know what I mean. Anything that happens like that, it just. Woof, you know, it's like vultures and you straight in there and it's fantastic. Yeah. Don't mess with Starship so far. So that's what I just want to say a big thank you. We're in limbo now. If we've made it, that would be fantastic. First podcast in history to be nominated for a Hugh Awards. And if we didn't, well, you know what I mean? There's always next year. Ha ha ha! Right, first off then, it is Mr. I-am-so-busy, and he, bless him, he is as well, he gives us a list of what he's got to do. Ho ho, Mr. J.J. Campanella with his Science News for the month.
1: Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this March 2010 installment of Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening, Jim Campanella. It's good to be speaking to you all again. Sometimes I wish I had the time and the financial capital to do this episode on a weekly basis. But until I retire in about 40 years or win the lottery, that is probably not going to be an option. Anyway, besides throwing you a couple of small stories, I'll be doing something a bit different with tonight's podcast. I'll be doing a book review of a popular hard science text that is just in the process of being published now. I was given a copy slightly in advance so I could decide whether I might want to employ it as a text in any of my classes. Since I know you're raring to hear my review, why don't I start out with that? And then I will talk about a couple of small, regular stories. The name of the book is How to Build a Dinosaur. It has the subtitle of The New Science of Reverse Evolution by Jack Horner. I abhor that misleading subtitle, but more on that later. Jack Horner is an American paleontologist who discovered Maiasaurus, providing the first clear evidence that some dinosaurs cared for their young. He's one of the best-known paleontologists in the U.S., In addition to his many paleontological discoveries, Horner served as the technical advisor for all of the Jurassic Park films and even served as inspiration for one of the lead characters, Dr. Alan Grant, although I've seen photos of him and he looks nothing like Sam Neill. Currently, he's the curator of paleontology at the Museum of the Rockies. He's a regents professor of paleontology, an adjunct curator at the National Museum of Natural History, and teaches with the honors program at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana. He's not a new commodity to publishing. Horner has published more than 100 professional research papers and six popular books, including Dinosaurs Under the Big Sky and Dinosaur Lives. His new book is about a topic that I actually talked about quite a while back on one of my science podcasts. It's the idea of taking modern animals and genetically reprogramming them to activate hidden inactive, atavistic genes, and getting them to develop to look more like their ancestors. Horner knows and knew that Jurassic Park was pure tosh when it came to real science. There's no way that we could ever piece the genetics of a dinosaur back together using the tiny amounts of degraded DNA from ancient mosquitoes for a whole series of technical reasons. In fact, he talks about some of those in his book. But Horner has not given up hope on resurrecting ancient tetrapods. He still literally wants to bring them back. But he wants to do it using advanced molecular genetics techniques applied to developmental genetics of modern animals. You may think this is nuts, but the cover of his book has the skeleton of a chickenosaurus on it, an imaginary, at present, beast that looks scarily like a velociraptor. Horner is almost fanatical about the topic, in his introduction, he says, quote, I have a chicken skeleton on my desk at the museum. I have kept the skeleton at hand wherever I have worked because it looks like a dinosaur. And I like being around dinosaur skeletons. Sometimes I look at it and turn it this way and that and think, if I could just grow these bones a little differently and tilt it this way, that another, I'd have a dinosaur skeleton. As I've looked at the bones I've started thinking less the bones and more about the underlying molecular processes that cause the bones to grow. How much I've wondered, would it take to redirect the chicken's growth so that it ended up looking like a dinosaur? Unquote. In short, Horner's fantastic goal is to create a dinosaur from a chicken by applying both the techniques of paleontology and molecular biology, give it a tail, change its wings into forelimbs get rid of the feathers in favor of a scaly body, and alter its beak into a snout with teeth. And do this all by activating long-turned-off ancestral traits that birds have carried in their DNA for millions of years. Well, how's the book? It is clear and well-written. The layman will have absolutely no problems keeping up with Horner and his logic or his explanations about his paleontological background information or his goals or his desires, this book is directed at Lehman. The first chapter gives a history of dinosaurs in Montana for the last several hundred million years, as well as some concise explanations of dinosaur mass extinctions. The second chapter has more of this introductory material, but it all leads up to Horner's major 2006 discovery, that is, that it is possible to demineralize a fossil, that is, remove the actual stone parts from the fossil by an acid bath. By doing that, actual dinosaur cells were revealed under the microscope, as well as nuclei and blood vessels. This particular discovery is still controversial, and a lot of paleontologists don't believe that this is possible, or don't believe that what Horner found are actual cells. Anyway, from that point in the book, Horner brings you on a journey of discovery. He talks about DNA and cloning and proteins, and how all these things are views into ancient evolution and physiology, as much as fossilized bones are a look into the past. He talks about birds and how they evolve from ancient reptiles. Finally, toward the end of the book, and it's not a huge book, it's only a couple hundred pages, he picks up on his obsession again and starts to go into more detail on how it is possible to alter a chicken into a dinosaur homologue. What is intriguing about what he proposes to do with chickens is not simply altering their DNA. He proposes changing the chickens into chickenosauruses by turning specific genes on and off during development by manipulating the growth signals that control avian development. That would result in an organism which is genetically still a chicken, but looks nothing like any chicken you've ever seen. It is dependent on something that every geneticist knows it's not just DNA that controls the final outcome of an organism. It is the environment in which that DNA is turned on and off. Now, from a hard science point of view, I do have a couple of major quibbles with the book. First, I really don't like the term reverse evolution. It implies a literal process of somehow reversing evolution, devolving an animal backwards. Um, by turning on atavistic genes, you are not devolving the creature you are altering its developmental pathway, but you're not devolving it into an actual dinosaur. This brings me to my second problem. My other problem with Horner's entire thesis has nothing to do with whether it is possible to actually accomplish his goals. I have absolutely no doubt that given enough grant money and time, he and his collaborator, Dr. Hans Larsen of McGill University, will be able to do this. In fact, I heartily support him and will stand in line to see that first chickenosaurus. So what's my problem? Well, it's more of a philosophical problem than anything else. And here it is. Will a chickenosaurus, or for that matter, an ostrichosaurus if it comes to that, be a dinosaur? In my opinion, well hell no. They will be nothing more than curiosities that will tell you a ton about developmental evolution and basic biology, but nothing about dinosaurs themselves. Why? Because they're not dinosaurs. Any data that Horner thinks he will be able to generate from his altered chicken about dinosaur physiology, mating habits, hunting habits, or behavior of any kind will always be suspect. And why? For the second time. Because it's not a dinosaur. If it quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, does that mean it's a duck? Well maybe to a duck hunter, but not to a serious biologist. We need more evidence than that to conclude it actually is a duck. Horner is implying that his chickenosaurus, like the just-mentioned duck, is close enough to a dinosaur to be a dinosaur. That may be good enough for the zoo theme park that he may open in a few years to show off his masterpieces, a la Michael Crichton, but not good enough for hardcore old-school paleontologists. I have to give Horner credit because he does eventually address this philosophical problem in his last chapter. He brings up an example of bringing back the ivory-billed woodpecker, which relatively recently went extinct. And he says, no matter how much we tinker and change the genome of other woodpeckers so that they look and act exactly like the ivory-billed woodpecker, they will always be Erzatz woodpeckers. Well, Erzatz ivory-billed woodpeckers. Although this problem of artificial animals does not seem to bother him too much, he suggests other easy replacement experiments like using domestic dog genes to replace wolves if they went extinct, or chickens to replace extinct wild chickens. Gallus gallus. And he does admit that things like the accurate quality of chickenosaurus behavior would be hard to determine, among other reasons because you would need herds of them to judge proper dinosaur behavior but Horner does admit that it will be an educated guess that anything we end up seeing in the manipulated chicken will be accurate to what he calls organisms from the deep time. Horner concludes his book with analyses of whether it is morally right to perform the experiments he is proposing, and even whether it is dangerous to do these experiments. And I will leave it to him to defend his fantasies in the book. I will not go into that. For my own part, I recommend Horner's book, I think that most readers will find it fascinating, especially if they have not read widely in either molecular biology or paleontology. Horner makes the material accessible and entertaining, and it is mind-blowing at times what modern paleontology has discovered. Okay, so let's get on with the small news stories of the night. First up, those of you who live in countries where marijuana is illegal, um, or California, may have been giggling in delight last month as I was listing yet more health problems produced by tobacco smoking. However, you can stop your giggling now. In the February issue of the journal Cell, Dr. Gary Kirachok, a biophysicist at the University of California, San Francisco, reports that marijuana isn't exactly harmless as far as health goes. Kirachok and his colleagues demonstrate that THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, can lead to male infertility. Now, this is not a new idea, not a new concept, not a new piece of data. It's been known for a while that this is the fact, but uh, Kirachak has actually found why this may be the problem, or what may lead to this problem. The ability of sperm to swim depends on protons leaving the sperm cell, small ions, and thereby what happens is, is that it lowers the acidity of the solution around the cell. The concentration of protons inside of a sperm is roughly about a thousand times higher outside. As the protons flood out of the cell like air being let out of a balloon, a host of changes kick the sperm swimming into high gear. But until now, just how the protons escaped was kind of a mystery. Kirichok and his colleagues found a protein called an ion channel in the sperm cell surface, through which those protons I just mentioned are able to escape the cell. They also found that a compound very similar to THC, structurally, opens up that ion channel. And it's been known for a long time, as I said, that fertility is affected by marijuana use, but no one has ever been able to figure out why. Well, using the evidence from this study, the authors speculate that habitual marijuana use may activate sperm cells via this newly discovered channel prematurely leaving them burned out and unable to swim when it counts. One may argue whether this is nature's little irony in preventing heavy drug users from reproducing. Ho, oh, whoa, bomber man. Well, our next quick story is a bit frightening and seems like something out of a movie like The Core. Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts reported last week that The magnitude 8.8 quake that slammed central Chile February 27th knocked the entire planet for a loop, literally. The sudden large-scale movement of tectonic plates that triggered the quake shifted immense masses of rock a few meters closer to the Earth's core and tilted the planet's axis a few centimeters and, and perceptibly shortened our day. As a result, the Earth's day is now 1.26 microseconds shorter than it was before the massive quake. Now, that might not seem like very much, but we're talking about the Earth. Because the quake shift in mass occurred deep in the southern hemisphere, Earth was slightly tipped off balance. It's kind of like a skater, a spinning skater, bringing in one arm but not the other. And the planet's figure axis, the line about which the Earth is balanced, shifted about 8 centimeters. This is particularly worrisome since geologists are now suggesting that the next couple of years could be very bad ones for earthquakes across the world, uh, simply because we have had no major quakes in a while, and the earth is reducing its pent-up stress, so to speak, by stretching a bit. We even had a minor earthquake here in New Jersey a couple of weeks back. Hopefully this does not turn into a 2012 scenario. Finally, you may be pleased to know that someone out there is actually trying to do something about the BPA problem in our plastics. You may remember from previous podcasts that BPA plastics leach substances into containers that are very similar in activity and structure to female hormones. Among other things, this leads to higher infertility in males and earlier physical development in females. The problem has been with a substance called a plasticizer, Plasticizers are compounds that add flexibility to harder plastics. What they do is is these plasticizers can migrate from these plastic materials. Of course, this raises serious health concerns about human exposure via medical devices or children's toys or, well, plastic water bottles for that matter. And what's the number one plasticizer? BPA. Research published March 9th in the journal Macromolecules, may lead to improved versions of hard plastics that don't leach these ingredients. The research was directed by Dr. Helmut Reinke of the Institute of Polymer Science and Technology in Madrid, Spain. Reinke worked with a plastic known as DEHP. His group first added a compound incorporating a sulfur group to DEHP and then mixed this sort of decorated plastic with another chemical called polyvinyl chloride, PVC. The sulfur bumped a chlorine atom aside, double bonding the plastic to the PVC backbone. The scientists then tested that new material by putting it in a solvent that typically prompts the BPA-type molecules to come out of the plastic very quickly. Quote, "...in our case, it was impossible to get it out." Unquote, says Reinke. They detected no trace of free BPA even after five hours of soaking. And usually after three, he says, three hours all of the molecules could be released or would be released. Well, that's a pretty great and fantastic breakthrough. However, as I indicated a couple of months ago on this show, the prime sources of BPAs may not be in plastic at all, but in our printed store receipts. And while plastic bottles may account for microgram quantities of our BPA exposure, which is bad enough, it's likely that receipts account for a thousand times higher levels of exposure. Okay, chemists, new plastics and bottles are great, but it seems like it's time to make a new type of printed store receipt. That's all for me for now. As always, take care. Look out for that chicken crossing the road, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Good night. Jim,
3: thank you so much for that. <laughs> you keep on doing them. You can't let everyone down now. Do you know what I mean? How dare you? Right, I want to play a little promo just before the kind of main fiction. This is from three ladies in Australia. Podcast is Galactic Suburbia. Everything you need to know
4: about Galactic Suburbia. Alex is a reviewer and a postgrad student. Pansy is a fantasy author and a mum. Elisa is an indie publisher and an engineer. We talk a lot about science fiction, fantasy, publishing, books, gossip, history, feminist history,
0: blogging, Joanna Russ, cyberpunk, steampunk. Is there a Roman punk?
4: There should be a Roman punk. Anthologies, the future. The internet. Many people are wrong on the internet. Australian speculative fiction. Conventions. Anything else that crosses our screen. Galactic suburbia. We talk a lot.
3: There you go. Now, I was actually told about galactic suburbia by Grant. Grant dropped us an email and says, Tony, you really need to have a listen to this. Because I did most of you know sophanauts and sophenots was kinda of put to bed a few months ago and maybe it might come out again, who can tell, do you know what I mean? One day. But if you like Sophanauts, then honestly, you like Galactic Suburbia. Do you know I, mean? I can't recommend it enough. It's exactly what you know, it's needed out there in the kind of the potosphere. There's big ones that are going, you know, like well, they've got nice big baton. These haven't. These are just doing it. These are like fans. These three girls of science fiction. I listened to the first one, and honestly, it was just what I needed for. Let's just keep us like involved in what's going on in science fiction, because sometimes you know when I kind of am busy in here and getting this all sorted out, you just miss things now, especially with not doing sofa notes. And if you like, see, if you like what we did on the sofa notes, you like this. Do you know what I mean? So please pop over, subscribe. That you're doing an amazing job. Right, on to main story, and it's by a writer called James Morrow. The story is Lady Witherspoon's solution. It first appeared in Extraordinary Engines, the definitive steampunk anthology, edited by Nick Evers. I will put a link on to James's site, but please go over there. This guy's writing some amazing stuff. Just out in 2009, what everyone was talking about was that book Shambling Towards Hiroshima. He's also had The Wine of Violence, 1981, The Continent of Lies. This Is The Way The World Ends, collections of short stories he's had, Swatting at the Cosmos, Bible Stories for Adults, The Cat's Pyjamas and Other Stories. He's been nominated for Oodles and Oodles of Award, the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Novel nominee, This Is The Way The World Ends, Nebula Award for Best Novel nominee, again This Is The World The World Ends. Nebula Winner, Best Short Story for Bible Stories for Adults, number 17, The Deluge. And this story is, you know, perfect, to be quite honest. It's just, it's exactly what you want a story to be. It's just fantastic. And honestly, I hope you just take your time and just think, right, I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to listen to it. Let them start rattling on. Let's just appreciate this story. Because this story, coupled together with this narration, is uh, honestly, hand on heart, there's not a place out there in the kind of sphere anywhere like that, and I'm talking like professional people that are kind of doing this for a living, that can match the quality of this story and this narration. This narration is done by Peter Seaton clark and his good wife Nicola Seaton clark and like I say, we've got, honestly... I'm so lucky that we got get some narrators on who just kind of put the hand up and say, "Tony, can I have a go?" And they turn out to be amazing. Do you know what I mean? And that was the same with Peter and Nicola Seaton Clark. And actually, Peter's got his own business to do to sort out, like voice act companies called Offstimmer, and Peter kind of organizes all different kind of voiceovers and voice acting for different corporations in Germany. And it was Nicola that got in touch with us and says, "Oh, we'd, we'd like to have a go." And they've played a couple of stories, and then this one came through. And you know, I passed it on, and they've done it as like a team. Both Peter and Nicola have done this kind of narration, and like I say. I don't care, you honestly come back, anyone come back and say, Tony, that's a more professional one and they've been paid big bucks. Because I'm guaranteeing you, you will not hear a better narration than this. This one is just what podcasting can do, do you know what I mean? And I'm so proud to bring this. I would like to have getting it on like, in artwork and everything like that, but I really, so as soon as I heard it, I wanted to kind of knock it up the ladder of Starship so and get it on and get it played. So uh, a big thank you to James Morrow for letting us play this story. Hopefully we'll get a few more off GMs. Like I say, this one is a cracking story. And a really big thank you to Peter and Nicola, Seaton Clark. Like I say, you will not listen to a better audio narration. It doesn't get no better. And I've been, in, I've been in this game five years now. Do you know what I mean? I know what I'm kind of talking about now. Do you know what I mean? I've got some kind of history there myself. So I know it's, it's amazing. So, the starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present Lady Witherspoon's Solution by James Morrow.
0: Personal Journal of Captain Archibald Carmody, RN Written aboard HMS Aldebaran Whilst on a voyage of scientific discovery in the Indian Ocean 13th of April, 1899. Latitude 1 degree, 10 minutes south. Longitude 71 degrees, 42 minutes east. Might there still be on this watery ball of ours a terra incognita, an uncharted even just over the horizon, home to noble Aborigines or perhaps even a lost civilization? A dubious hypothesis, at least on the face of it. This is the age of the surveyor's sextant and the cartographer's calipers. Our planet has been girded east to west and gridded pole to pole, and yet what sea-captain these days does not dream of happening upon some obscure but cornucopian island? Naturally he will keep the coordinates to himself, so he can return in time accompanied by his faithful mate and favourite books, there to spend the rest of his life in blissful solitude." Today I may have found such a world. Our mission to Ceylon being complete with over a hundred specimens to show for our troubles, most notably a magnificent lavender butterfly with wings as large as a coquette's fan and a green beetle of chitin so shiny that you can see your face in the carapace. We were steaming south by southwest for the Chagos archipelago when a monsoon gathered behind us, persuading me to change course fifteen degrees. Two hours later the tempest passed, having filled our hold with brackish puddles, though mercifully sparing our specimens. Whereupon we found ourselves in a view of a green, ragged mass, unknown to any map in Her Majesty's Navy, small enough to elude detection until this day, yet large enough for the watch to cry, Land ho! whilst the older baran was yet two miles from the reef. We came to a quiet cove, I dispatched an exploration party led by Mr. Bainbridge to investigate the inlet. He reported back an hour ago, telling of bulbous fruits, scampering monkeys, and tapestries of exotic blossoms. When the tide turns tomorrow morning, I shall go ashore myself, for I think it likely that the island harbors invertebrate species of the sort for of which our sponsors pay handsomely. But right now, I shall amuse myself in imagining what to call the atoll. I am not so vain as to stamp my own name on these untrammeled sands. My wife, however, is a person I esteem sufficiently to memorialize her on a scale commensurate with her wisdom and beauty. So here we lie but a single degree below the line, at anchor off Lydia Isle, waiting for the cockatoos to sing the dawn into being. 14th of April, 1899 Latitude 1 degree 10 minutes south, longitude 71 degrees 42 minutes east. The pen trembles in my hand. This has been a day unlike any in my twenty years at sea. Unless, I miss my guess, Lydia Isle is home to a colony of beasts that science, for the best of reasons, once thought extinct. It was our naturalist Mr. Chalmers who first noticed the tribe— Passing me the glass, he quivered with an excitement unusual in this phlegmatic gentleman. I adjusted the focus and suddenly there he was, the colony's most venturesome member, poking a simian head out from a cavern in the central ridge. Soon more ape-men appeared at the entrance to their rocky doss-house. A dozen at least, poised on the knife-edge of their curiosity, uncertain whether to flee into their grotto or further scrutinise us with their deep, watery eyes and wide, sniffing nostrils. We advanced, rifles at the ready. The ape-men chattered, howled, and finally retreated, but not before I got a sufficiently clear view to make a positive identification. Beetle-brows, monumental noses, tentative chins, barrel-chests. I have seen these features before, in an alcove of the British Museum devoted to artists' impressions of a vanished creature that first came to light 43 years ago in Germany's Neander Valley. According to my Skeffington's Guide to Fossils of the Continent, the quarrymen who unearthed the skeleton believed they'd found the remains of a bear, until the local schoolmaster, Johann Karl Fullroth, and a trained anatomist, Hermann Schaffhausen, determined that the bones spoke of prehistoric Europeans. Full-rotten Schaffhausen had to amuse themselves with only a skull-cap, femur, scapula, ilium, and some ribs. But we have found a living, breathing remnant of the race. I can scarcely write the word legibly, so great is my excitement. Neanderthals. 16th of April, 1899. Latitude 1 degree 10 minutes south, longitude 71 degrees 42 minutes east. Unless there dwells in the hearts of our Neanderthals a quality of cunning that their outward aspect belies, we need no longer go armed amongst them. They are docile as a herd of Cotswold sheep. Whenever my officers and I explore the cavern that shelters their community, they lurch back in fear, and if I'm not mistaken, a kind of religious awe. It's a heady feeling to be an object of worship, even when one's idolaters are of a lower race. Such adoration I'll warrant could become as addictive as a Chinaman's pipe, and I hope to eschew its allure even as we continue to study these shaggy primitives. How has so meek a people managed to survive into the present day? I would ascribe their prosperity to the extreme conviviality of their world. For food they need merely pluck bananas and mangoes from the trees. When the monsoon arrives they need but retreat into their cavern— If man-eating predators inhabit Lydia Isle, I have yet to see any. Freed from the normal pressures that by the theories of Mr. Darwin tend to drive a race towards either oblivion or adaptive transmutation, our Neanderthals have cultivated habits that prefigure the accomplishments of civilized peoples. Their speech is crude and thus far incomprehensible to me, all grunts and snorts and wheezes, and yet they employ it not only for ordinary communication, but to entertain themselves with songs and chants. For their dancing rituals they fashioned flutes from reeds, drums from logs, and even a kind of rudimentary oboe from bamboo, making music under whose influence their swaying frames attain a certain elegance. Nor is the art of painting unknown on Lydia Isle. By torchlight we have beheld on the walls of their cavern adroit representations of the indigenous monkeys and birds. But the fullest expression of the Neanderthal's artistic sense is to be found in the cemetery, that they maintain in an open field not far from their stone apartments. Whereas most of the graves are marked with simple cairns, a dozen mounds feature effigies wrought from wicker and daub, each doubtless representing the earthly form of the dear departed. The details of these funerary images are invariably male, a situation not remarkable in itself, as the tribe may regard the second sex as unworthy of commemoration. What perplexes Mr. Chalmers and myself is that we have yet to come upon a single female of the race, or, for that matter, any infants. Might we find the Neanderthal wives and children cowering in the cave's deeper sanctum, or did some devastating tropical plague visit Lydia Isle, taking with it the entire female gender, plus every generation of males save one? 17th of April 1899 Latitude one degree ten minutes south, longitude seventy-one degrees forty-two minutes east. This morning I made a friend. I named him Silver, after the lightning flash of fur that courses along his spine like an externalised backbone. It was Silver who made the initial gesture of amicability, presenting me with a gift of a flute. When I managed to pipe out a reasonable rendition of Beautiful Dreamer, he smiled broadly. Yes, the Aborigines can smile. "'and wrapped his leathery hand around mine. "'I did not recoil from the gesture, "'but allowed silver to lead me to a clearing in the jungle, "'where I beheld a solitary burial mound, "'decorated with a funerary effigy. "'Whilst I would never presume to plunder the grave, "'I must note that the British Museum "'would pay handsomely for this sculpture. "'The workmanship is skilful, "'and, mirabile dictu, the form is female. "'She wears a crown of flowers,' from beneath which stream glorious tresses of grass. Incised on a lump of soft wood, the facial features are, in their own naive way, lovely. Such are the observable facts. But Silver's solicitous attitude towards the effigy leads me to an additional conclusion. The woman interred in this hallowed ground, I do not doubt, was once my poor friend's mate. 19th of April, 1899 Latitude one degree, ten minutes south, longitude seventy-one degrees, forty-two minutes east. An altogether extraordinary day, bringing an event no less astonishing than our discovery of the Aborigines. Once again Silver led me to his mate's graven image, whereupon he reached into his satchel, an intricate artefact woven of reeds, and drew forth a handwritten journal entitled Confidential Diary and Personal Observations of Catherine Margaret Glover, even if Silver spoke English, I would not have bothered to inquire as to Miss Glover's identity, for I knew instinctively that it was she who occupied the tomb beneath our feet in presenting me with a little volume. My friend managed to communicate his expectation that I would peruse the contents but then return it forthwith so he might continue drawing sustenance from its numinous leaves. I spent the day collaborating with Mr. Chalmers in cataloguing the many Lepidoptera and Coleoptera we have collected thus far. Normally I take pleasure in taxonomic activity, but today I could think of only finishing the job. So beguiling was the siren call of the diary. At length the parrots performed their final recital, the tropical sun found the equatorial sea, and I returned to my cabin, where following a light supper I read the chronicle cover to cover. Considering its talismanic significance to silver, I would never dream of appropriating the volume. Yet it tells a story so astounding, one that inclines me to rethink my earlier theory concerning the Neanderthals, that I am resolved to forego sleep until I have copied the most salient passages into this, my own secret journal. All told, there are 114 separate entries spanning the interval from February through June of 1889, the vast majority have no bearing on the mystery of the Aborigines, being verbal sketches that Miss Glover hoped to incorporate into her ongoing literary endeavour, an epic poem about the first-century A.D. warrior queen Bodicea. Given the limitations of my energy and my ink supply, I must reluctantly allow those jottings to pass into oblivion. Who was Kitty Glover? The precocious child of landed gentry. She evidently lost both her mother and father to consumption before her thirteenth year. In the interval immediately following her parents' death, Kitty's 'er ne'er-do-well brother gambled away the family's fortune. She then spent four miserable years in Merlebone Workhouse, picking oakum until her fingers bled, all the while trying in vain to get a letter to her late mother's acquaintance, Elizabeth Witherspoon of Briarwood House in Hampstead, a widowed baroness presiding over her dead husband's considerable fortune. Kitty had reason to believe that Lady Witherspoon would heed her plight, as the circumstances under which the Baroness came to know Kitty's mother were unforgettable, involving, as they did, the former's deliverance by the latter from almost certain death. Kitty's diary contains no entry recounting the episode, but I infer that Lady Witherspoon was boating on the Thames near Greenwich when she tumbled into the water. The cries of the Baroness who could not swim were heard by Maud Glover, who could— The author doesn't say how her mother came to be on the scene of Lady Witherspoon's misadventure, though Kitty occasionally mentions fishing in the Thames, so I would guess an identical diversion had years earlier brought more to that same river. Despite the machinations of her immediate supervisor, the loutish Ezekiel Snavely, Kitty's fifth letter found its way to Briarwood House. Lady Witherspoon forthwith delivered Kitty from Snavely's clutches and made the girl her ward. Not only was Kitty accorded her own cottage on the estate grounds, her benefactor provided a monthly allowance of ten pounds, a sum sufficient for the young woman to mingle with London society, and adorn herself in the latest fashions. In the initial entries Lady Witherspoon emerges as a muddle-minded person, obsessed with the welfare of an organisation that at first Kitty thought silly, the Hampstead Ladies Croquet Club and Benevolent Society but there was more on the minds of these six women than knocking balls through hoops.
4: Confidential Diary and Personal Observations of Catherine Margaret Glover The Year of Our Lord, 1889 Today I am moved to comment on a dimension of life here at Briarwood that I have not addressed before. Whilst most of our servants, footmen, maids and gardeners, appear normal in aspect and comportment, two of the staff, Martin and Andrew, exhibit features so grotesque that my dreams are haunted by their lumbering presence. Their duties comprise nothing beyond maintaining the grounds, the croquet field in particular, and I suspect they are so mentally enfeebled that Lady Weatherspoon hesitates to assign them more demanding tasks.' Indeed, the one time I attempted to engage Martin and Andrew in conversation, they regarded me quizzically and responded only with soft, huffing grunts. I once saw in the zoological gardens an orangutan named Attila. And in my opinion, Martin and Andrew belong more to that variety of ape than to even the most bestial men of my acquaintance, including the execrable Ezekiel, the execrable Ezekiel Snavely. With their weak chins and flaring nostrils, sunken black eyes, proliferation of body hair, and decks of broken teeth the size of pebbles, our groundskeepers seem on probation from the jungle, still awaiting full admittance to the human race. It speaks well of the baroness that she would hire such freaks as might normally find themselves in Spitalfields, swilling gin and begging for their supper. I cannot help but notice a bodily deformity in our groundskeepers. I told Lady Witherspoon. In employing them, you have shown yourself to be a true Christian. In fact, Martin and Andrew were once even more degraded than they appear, the Baroness replied. The day those unfortunates arrived, I instructed the servants to treat them with humanity. Kindness, it seems, will gentle the nature of even the most miserable outcast. Then I, too, shall treat them with humanity, I vowed. Wednesday, "'10th of April. This morning I approached Lyddy Witherspoon with a scheme whose realisation "'would, I believe, be a boon to English letters. I proposed that we establish here at Briarwood "'a school for the cultivation of the Empire's next generation of poets. "'Not unlike that artistically fecund society formed by Lord Byron, "'Percy Shelley and their acolytes in an earlier part of the century.' By founding such an institution, I argued, Lady Witherspoon would gain an enviable reputation as a friend to the arts, while my fellow poets and I would lift one another to unprecedented promontories of literary accomplishment. Instead of holding forth on either the virtues or the liabilities of turning Briarwood into a a monastery for scribblers, Lady Witherspoon looked me in the eye and said— This strikes me as an opportune moment to address a somewhat different matter concerning your future, Kitty. It is my fond hope that you will one day take my place as head of the Hampstead Ladies Croquet Club and Benevolent Society. Much as I admire the women who constitute our present membership, none is your equal in metal and brains. Your praise touches me deeply, madam, though I am at a loss to say why that particular office requires either metal or brains. I shall forgive your condescension, child, as you are unaware of the organization's true purpose. Which is? Which is something I shall disclose when you are ready to assume the mantle of leadership. From the Appalachian Benevolent Society, might I surmise that you do charitable works? We are generous towards our friends, rather less so towards our enemies, Lady Witherspoon replied with a quick smile that— "'unlike the society's ostensible aim, was not entirely benevolent. "'Does this charity consist in saving misfits like Martin and Andrew from extinction?' "'Instead of addressing my question, the baroness clasped my hand and said, "'Here is my counterproposal. "'Allow me to groom you as my successor, "'and I shall happily subsidize your commonwealth of poets.' "'An excellent arrangement!' I believe I'm getting the better of the bargain. Unless you object, I should like to call my nation's school the Elizabeth Witherspoon Academy of Arts and Letters. You have my permission, the baroness said. Monday, the 15th of April A Day Spent in Fleet Street Where I arranged for the Times to run an advertisement urging all interested poets, whether wholly Byronic or merely embryonic, (laughs) to bundle up their best work and bring it to the Elizabeth Witherspoon Academy of Arts and Letters, scheduled to convene at Briarwood House a week from next Sunday. The mere knowledge that this community will soon come into being has proved for me a font of inspiration. Tonight. I kept pen pressed to paper for five successive hours, with the result that I now have in my drawer seven stanzas concerning the marriage of my flame-haired bodicea to Prasutagus, king of the Iceni Britons. Strange fancies buzz through my brain like bees bereft of sense. My skull is a hive of conjecture. What is the true purpose, to use the Baroness's term, of the benevolent society? Do its members presume to practice the black arts?' Does my patroness imagine that she is in turn patronized by Lucifer? Forgive me, Lady Witherspoon, for entertaining such ungracious speculations. You deserve better of your adoring ward. The society gathers on the first Saturday of next month, whereupon I shall play the prowler. Such is my resolve. Curiosity may have killed Cat, but I trust it will serve to enlighten this kitty." Sunday, 28th of April The inauguration of my poet's utopia proved more auspicious than I had dared hope. All told, three bards made their way to Hampstead. We enjoyed a splendid high tea, then shared our nascent works. The Reverend Tobias Crowther of Stoke Newington is a blousy man of cheerful temper. For the past year he has devoted his free hours to Deathless in Bethany— "'a long, dramatic poem about Lazarus's adventures "'following his resuscitation by our Lord. "'He read the first scene aloud, "'and with every line his listeners grew more entranced. "'Our next performer was Ellen Ruggles, "'a pallid schoolmistress from Kensington, "'who favoured us with four odes. "'Evidently there is no subject so humble "'that Miss Ruggles will not celebrate it in verse, "'be it a flower-pot,' "'a tea-kettle, a spider-web, or an earthworm. "'The men squirmed during her recitation, "'but I was exhilarated to hear Miss Ruggles sing "'of the quotidian enchantments that lie everywhere to hand. "'With a quaver in my throat and a tremor in my knees, "'I enacted Boadicea's speech to Prasotagus "'as he lies on his deathbed, "'wherein she promises to continue his policy "'of appeasing the Romans. "'My discomfort was unjustified, however,' for after my presentation the other poets all made cooing noises and applauded. I was particularly pleased to garner the approval of Edward Pertius, a wealthy Bloomsbury Bohemian and apostle of the mad philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Mr. Pertius is quite the most well-favoured man I have ever surveyed at close quarters, and I sense that he possesses a splendour of spirit to match his face. The Abyssiad is a grand epic poem— wrought of materials that Mr. Pertius cornered in the wildest reaches of his fancy, and subsequently brought under the civilizing influence of his pen. On the planet Vivoid, far beyond Uranus, the Übermensch prophesied by Herr Nietzsche
5: For free shipping and 365-day returns.
4: Come into existence. An exemplar of this superior race travels to Earth with the aim of teaching human beings how they might live their lives to the full. Mr. Pertius is not only a superb writer, but also a fine actor, and his opening cantos held our fellowship spellbound. He has even undertaken to illustrate his manuscript, decorating the bottom margin with crayon drawings of the Übermensch, who wears a dashing scarlet cape and looks rather like his creator—Mr. Pertius, I mean, not Herr Nietzsche. I can barely wait until our group reconvenes four weeks hence. I'm deliriously anxious to learn what happens when the visitor from Vivoid attempts to corrupt the human race. I long to clap my eyes on Mr. Pertius again. Saturday Fourth of May. An astonishing day that began in utter mundanity with the titled ladies of the benevolent society arriving in their cabriolets and coaches. Five aristocrats plus the baroness made six. One for each croquet mallet in the spectrum red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. After taking tea in the garden, everyone proceeded to the south lawn, newly scythed by Martin and Andrew. Six hoops and two pegs stood ready for the game. The women played three matches, with Lady Stirlingford winning the first, Lady Unsworth the second, and Lady Witherspoon the last. Although they took their sport seriously, bringing to each shot a scientific precision, their absorption in technique did not preclude their chattering about matters of stupendous inconsequentiality the weather, Paris fashions, or who had or had not been invited to the Countess of Rexford's upcoming soiree. "'whilst I sat on a wrought-iron chair "'and attempted to write a scene of the Romans flogging Bodicea "'for refusing to become their submissive client. "'At dusk, the croquet-players repaired to the banquet hall, "'there to dine on pheasant and grouse, "'while I lurked outside the open window, "'observing their vapid smiles "'and overhearing their effervescent conversation "'as devoid of substance as their prattle on the playing-field. "'When at last the ladies finished their feast,' They migrated to the west parlor. The casement gave me a coin of vantage on Lady Witherspoon as she approached the far wall and pulled aside a faded tapestry, concealing the door to a descending spiral staircase. Laughing and trilling, the ladies passed through the secret portal and began their downward climb. Within ten minutes I had furtively joined the society in the manor's most subterranean sanctum, its walls dancing with phantoms conjured by a dozen blazing torches. A green velvet drape served as my cloak of invisibility. Like the east lawn, the basement had been converted into a gaming space, but whereas the croquet field bloomed with sweet grass and the occasional wild violet, the sanctum floor was covered end to end with a foul carpet of thick Russet mud from my velvet niche, I could observe the suspended gallery in which reposed the six women, as well as flanking and fronting the mire, two discreet ranks of jail cells eight per block, each compartment inhabited by a hulking, snarling brute sprung from the same benighted line as Martin and Andrew. The atmosphere roiled with a fragrance such as I had never before endured. A stench compounded of stagnant water, damp fur, and the soiled hay filling the cages, even as my brain reeled with the primal improbability of the spectacle. In the gallery a flurry of activity unfolded, and I soon realized that the women were wagering on the outcome of the incipient contest. Each aristocrat obviously had her favorite ape-man— Though I got the impression that, contrary to the norms of such gambling, the players were betting on which beast could be counted upon to lose. After all the wages were made, Lady Witherspoon gestured toward the far perimeter of the pit, where her major-domo, Wembley, and his chief assistant, Padding, were pacing in nervous circles. First, Wembley sprang into action, setting his hand to a small windlass, and thus opening a cage in the nearer of the two sail blocks. As the liberated ape-man skulked into the arena, Padding operated a second windlass, thereby opening a facing cage and freeing its occupant. Retreating in tandem, Wembley and Padding slipped into a stone sentry-box and locked the door behind them. Only now did I notice that the bog was everywhere planted with implements of combat. Cudgels of all sorts rose from the mire like bulrushes, Each ape-man instinctively grabbed a weapon, the larger brute selecting a a shillelagh, his opponent a wooden mace bristling with toothy bits of metal. The combat that followed was protracted and vicious, the two enemies hammering at each other until rivulets of blood flowed down their fur. Thuds, grunts, and cries of pain resounded through the fetid air, as did the society's enthusiastic cheers. In time, the smaller beast triumphed. "'dealing his opponent a cranial blow so forceful "'that he dropped the shillelagh and collapsed in the bog, "'prone and trembling with terror. "'The victor approached his stricken foe, "'placed a muddy foot on his rump, "'and made ready to dash out the fallen creature's brains, "'at which juncture Lady Witherspoon lifted a tin whistle to her lips "'and let loose a metallic shriek. "'Instantly the victor released his mace and faced the gallery, where Lady Pembroke now stood, grasping a ceramic file stoppered with a plug of cork. Evidently recognizing the file and perhaps even smelling its contents, the victor forgot all about decerebrating his enemy. He shuffled towards Lady Pembroke and raised his hairy hands beseechingly. When she tossed him the coveted file, he frantically tore out the stopper and sucked down the entire measure. Having satisfied his craving for the opiate, The brute tossed the file aside, then yawned, stretched, and staggered back to his cage. He lay down in the straw and fell asleep. Cautiously, but resolutely, Wembley and Padding left their sentry-box, the former now holding a Gladstone bag of the sort carried by physicians. Whilst Padding secured the door to the victor's cage, Wembley knelt beside the vanquished beast. Opening the satchel, he removed a gleaming scalpel a surgeon's needle, a variety of gauze dressings, and a hypodermic syringe loaded with an amber fluid. The major domo nudged the plunger, releasing a single glistening bead, and, satisfied that the hollow needle was unobstructed, injected the drug into the brute's arm. The creature's limbs went slack. Presently Padding arrived on the scene, drawing from his pocket a pristine white handkerchief, "'which he used to clean the delta betwixt the ape-man's thighs. "'Whereupon Wembley took up his scalpel "'and meticulously slit a portion of the creature's anatomy "'for which I know no term more delicate than scrotum. "'The gallery erupted in a chorus of hurrays. "'With practised efficiency, "'the major-domo appropriated the twin contents of the scrotal sac each sphere as large as those with which the ladies had earlier entertained themselves, then plopped them into separate glass jars filled with a a clear fluid alcohol most probably, subsequently passing the vessels to padding. Next, Wembley produced two actual croquet balls, which he inserted into the cavity prior to suturing and bandaging the incision. After offering the gallery a deferential bow— Padding presented one trophy to Lady Pembroke, the other to Lady Unsworth, both of whom I surmised had correctly predicted the upshot of the contest. Lady Witherspoon led the other women, Baroness Cushing, the Marchioness of Harcourt, the Countess of Netherby, in a round of delirious applause. The evening was young, and before it ended, three additional battles were fought in the stinking, echoing, glowing pit. Three more victors, three more losers, three more plundered scrota, six more harvested spheres, with the result that each noblewoman ultimately received at least one prize. During the intermissions, a liveried footman served the society chocolate cream with strawberries. Dear diary, allow me to make a confession. I enjoyed the lady's sport. Despite a generally... Christian sensibility, I could not help but imagine that each felled and eunuched brute was the odious Ezekiel Snavely. I had no desire to assume, per Lady Witherspoon's wishes, the leadership of her unorthodox organization, and yet the idea of my tormentor getting trounced in this arena soothed me more than I can say. Clutching their vessels, the ladies ascended the spiral staircase. I pictured each guest slipping into her conveyance, and, before commanding the coachman to take her home, demurely snugging her winnings into her lap as a lady of less peculiar tastes might secure a purse, a music-box, or a pair of gloves. For a full twenty minutes I lingered behind my velvet drape, listening to the bestial snarls and savage growls. Then began my slow climb to the surface, a fire with a delight, for which I hope our English language never breeds a name.
6: Monday, 6th of May
4: To her eternal credit, when I confessed to the Baroness that I had spied on the underground tournament, she elected to extol my audacity rather than condemn my duplicity, adding but one caveat to this absolution. I am willing to cast a sympathetic eye on your escapade, she told me, but I must ask you to reciprocate by supposing that a laudable goal informs our baiting of the brutes. I don't doubt that your sport serves a greater good, but who are those wretched creatures? They seem more ape than human. The Baroness replied that, come noon to-morrow, I must go to the North Tower and climb to the uppermost floor where I would— encounter a room I did not know existed. There, amongst her retorts and alembics, all my questions would be answered. Thus did I find myself in Lady Witherspoon's cylindrical laboratory. A gas-lit chamber crammed with work-tables, on which rested the vessels of which she'd spoken, along with various flasks, bell-jars and test-tubes, plus a beaker holding a golden substance that the Baroness was heating over a Bunsen burner. Bubbles danced in the burnished fluid. At the centre of the circle lay a plump man, with waxen skin, naked, head to toe, pink as a piglet, bound to an operating table with leather straps about his wrists and ankles. His name, the baroness informed me, was Ben Towson, and he looked as if he had a great deal to say about his situation, but, owing to the steel bit betwixt his teeth tightly secured with thongs, he could not utter a word. It all began on a lovely April afternoon in 1883, back when the society was content to play croquet with inorganic balls, Lady Witherspoon said. I had arranged for a brilliant French scientist to address our group, Henri Renan, director of the Paris Museum of Natural History. A devotee of Charles Darwin, Dr. Renaud, perforce believed that modern apes and contemporary humans share a common, though extinct, ancestor. It had become his obsession to corroborate Darwin through chemistry. After a decade of research, Renaud concocted a potent drug from human neuronal tissue and simian cerebrospinal fluid. He soon learned that over a course of three injections, this serum— would transform an orangutan or a gorilla into—not a human being, exactly, but a creature of far greater talents than nature ever granted an ape. Renault called his discovery-infusion you. You for uplift? I ventured. You for unknown, Lady Witherspoon corrected me. Monsieur le docteur was probing that interstice— Where science ends and enigma begins. Approaching a cabinet jammed with glass vessels, the Baroness took down a stoppered Erlenmeyer flask containing a bright blue fluid. I recently acquired a quantity of Renault's evolutionary catalyst. One day soon I shall conduct my own investigations using Infusion U. One day soon? From what I saw in the gaming pit, I would say you've already performed numerous such experiments. Our tournaments have nothing to do with the infusion U. Briefly, Lady Witherspoon contemplated the flask, its contents coruscating in the sallow light. Gingerly, she reshelved the arcane chemical. A few years after creating serum number one, Renault perfected its precise inverse, infusion D. "'Devolution?' "'For Demimol,' the baroness replied, pointing to the burbling beaker. "'Such unorthodox research belongs to the shadows.' With the aid of an insulated clamp, she removed the hot beaker from the flame's influence and, availing herself of a funnel, decanted the contents into a rack of test tubes. She returned Infusion D to the burner. After the batch had cooled sufficiently— The baroness took up a hypodermic syringe and filled the barrel. It was this second formula that Renault demonstrated to the society, the baroness said. After we'd seated ourselves in the drawing-room, he injected five cubic centiliters into a recently condemned murderer, one Jean-Marc Girard, who proceeded to regress before our eyes. Lady Witherspoon now performed the identical experiment on Ben Towson. "'locating a large vein in his forearm, "'inserting needle and pushing the plunger. "'I knew precisely what was going to happen, "'and yet I could not bring myself entirely to believe it. "'Whilst Infusion D seethed in its beaker "'and the gas hissed through the laboratory lamps, "'Towson began to change. "'Even as he fought against his straps, "'his jaw diminished, his brow expanded "'and his eyes receded like successfully pocketed billiard balls.' Each nostril grew to a diameter that would admit a chestnut. Great hauling tufts of fur appeared on his skin like weeds emerging from fecund soil. He whimpered like a whipped dog. "'Good God!' I said. "'A striking metamorphosis, yes, but inchoate, for he will become his full simian self only after two more injections,' Lady Witherspoon said. "'Though to my naive eye, Towson already appeared identical to the brutes I'd observed in the arena. What we have here is the very sort of being Renault fashioned for our edification that memorable spring afternoon. He assured us that, before delivering Girard to the executioner, he would employ Infusion U in restoring the miscreant, lest the hangman imagine he was killing an innocent ape. The Towson beast bucked and lurched thus prompting the baroness to tighten the straps on his wrists. It was obvious from his presentation that Renaud saw no practical use for his discovery beyond validating the theory of evolution, but we of the Hampstead Ladies Croquet Club immediately envisioned a benevolent application. Benevolent by certain lights, I noted, scanning the patient. His procreative paraphernalia had become grotesquely enlarged, though... Evidently, it would not achieve croquet caliber until injection number three. By other lights, controversial. By still others, criminal. Lady Witherspoon did not address my argument directly, but instead contrived the slyest of smiles, took my hand, and said, Tell me, dear Kitty, how do you view the human male? I am fond of certain men, I replied. "'such as Mr. Pertius,' I almost added. "'Others annoy me, and some I fear.' "'Would you not agree that, whilst isolated specimens of the male "'can be amusing and occasionally even valuable, "'there is something profoundly unwell about the gender as a whole, "'a demon impulse that inclines men to treat their fellow beings, "'women particularly, with cruelty?' "'I have suffered the slings of male entitlement,' I said in a voice of assent. "'The director of Maliban Workhouse took liberties with my person "'that I would prefer not to discuss. "'Before releasing my hand, the baroness accorded it a sympathetic squeeze. "'Our idea was a paragon of simplicity. "'Turn the male demon against itself.' teach it to fear and loathe its own gender rather than the female, debase it with bludgeons, humble it with mud, for the final Philip, deprive it of the ability to sire additional fiends. Your society thinks as boldly as the Vivoidians who populate Mr. Pertius's saga of the Uber Mansion. I have not read your fellow poet's epic, but I shall take your remark as a compliment. Thanks to Monsieur le docteur, we have in our possession an antidote for masculinity, a remedy that falls so far short of homicide that even a woman of the most refined temperament may apply it without qualm. To be sure, there are more conventional ways of dealing with the demon, but what sane woman informed of infusion D would prefer to rely instead on the normal institutions of justice, whose barristers and judges are invariably of the uh, scrotal persuasion? "'Not only do I follow your logic,' I said, cinching the strap on the ape-man's left ankle. "'I confess to sharing your enthusiasm.' "'Dear Kitty, your intelligence never ceases to amaze me. "'Even Renaud, when I told him that the Society had set out to cure men of themselves, assumed I was joking.' "'Bending over her rack of Infusion D, Lady Witherspoon ran her palms along the test-tubes as if playing a glass harmonica.' "'Have you perchance heard of Jack the Ripper?' she asked abruptly. "'The Whitechapel maniac?' I cinched the right ankle-strap. "'For six weeks running, London's journalists wrote of little else.' The butcher slit the throats of at least five West End trollops, mutilating their bodies in ways that beggar the imagination. Last night, Lady Pembroke went home carrying half the Ripper's manhood in her handbag, whilst Lady Unsworth made off with the other half you were likewise witness to the rehabilitation of Milton Starling, a legislator who, before running afoul of our agents, alternately raped his niece in his barn and denounced the cause of women's suffrage on the floor of Parliament. You also beheld the gelding of Josiah Lippett, who, until recently, earned a handsome income delivering orphan girls from the slums of London to the brothels of Constantinople. No doubt... The past lives of Martin and Andrew are similarly checkered? Prior to their encounter with the Society, they brokered the sale of nearly three hundred young women into white slavery throughout the Empire. What ultimately happens to your eunuchs? I asked. Are they all granted situations at Briarwood in the estates of your other ladies? Martin and Andrew are merely making themselves useful whilst awaiting deportation, the Baroness replied. "'Once every six months we transfer a boatload of castrati "'to an uncharted island in the Indian Ocean. "'Atonement Atoll, we call it. "'But they may live out their seedless lives in harmony with nature.' "'The patient, I noticed, had fallen asleep. "'Is he still a carnivore, I wonder?' "'I gestured toward the slumbering beast. "'Or does he now dream of bananas?' "'A pertinent question, Kitty,' "'I am not privy to the immediate contents of Towson's head, "'just as I cannot imagine what was passing through his mind "'when he kicked his wife to death. "'God save the Hampstead Ladies Croquet Club and Benevolent Society,' I said. "'And the Queen,' my patroness added. "'And the Queen,' I said. "'Sunday, 26th May. "'The second gathering of the Witherspoon Academy of Arts and Letters "'proved every bit as bracing as the first. Miss Ruggles presented four odes so vivid in their particulars that I shall never regard a windmill, a button, a child's kite or a gutted fish in quite the same way again. Mr. Crowther charmed us with another instalment of his verse-drama about Lazarus, an episode in which the resurrected aristocrat, thinking himself commensurate with Christ, travels to Chorazin with the aim of founding a salvationist religion." Mr. Pertius brought his ubermensch into contact with a cadre of Hegelian philosophers, a trauma so disruptive of their neoplatonic worldview that they all went irretrievably insane. For my own contribution, I performed a scene in which Boadicea, bound and gagged, is forced to watch as her two daughters are molested by the Romans. The other poets claimed to be impressed by my depiction of the ghastly event, with Miss Ruggles declaring that she'd never heard anything quite so affecting on all her life. But the real reason I shall always cherish this day concerns an incident that occurred after the workshop adjourned. Once Miss Ruggles and Mr. Crowther had sped away in their respective coaches, having exchanged manuscripts with the aim of offering each other further appreciative commentary, Mr. Pertius approached me— and announced in a diffident but heartfelt tone that I had been in his thoughts of late, and he hoped I might accord him an opportunity to earn my admiration of his personhood, as opposed to his poetry. I responded that his personhood had not escaped my notice, then invited him for a stroll along the brook that girds the manor-house. We had not gone twenty yards, when, acting on a sudden impulse, I told my companion the whole perplexing story of the Hampstead Ladies' Croquet Club. I omitted no proper noun. Dr. Renaud, Ben Towson, Jean-Marc Girard, Jack the Ripper, Infusion U, Infusion D. At first he reacted with scepticism, but when I noted that my tale could be easily corroborated, I need merely lead him into the depths of Briarwood House and show him the caged brutes awaiting humiliation, he grew more liberal in his judgment. "'You present me with two possibilities,' Mr. Pertius said. "'Either I am becoming friends with an insane poet who writes of ancient female warriors, "'or else Lady Elizabeth Witherspoon is the most capable woman in England, "'excepting, of course, the Queen. "'Given my fondness for you, I prefer to embrace the second theory.' "'Naturally, I must insist that you not repeat these revelations to another living soul.' "'I shan't repeat them, even to the dead.' Were you to betray my confidence, Mr. Pertius, my attitude to you would curdle in an instant. You may trust me implicitly, Miss Glover, but pray, indulge my philosophical side. As a votary of Herr Nietzsche, I cannot but speculate on the potential benefits of these astonishing chemicals. Assuming Lady Witherspoon withheld no pertinent fact from you, I would conclude that, whilst the utility of Infusion D has been exhausted— this is manifestly not the case with the uplift serum. May I speak plainly? I am the sort of man who, if he possessed a quantity of the drug, would not scruple to experiment with it. Mais pourquoi, Mr. Pertius? Have you a pet orangutan with whom you desire to play chess? I do not see why the uplift serum should be employed solely for the betterment of apes. I do not see why—, why it "'Should not be introduced into a human subject?' I said, at once aghast and fascinated. "'A blasphemous idea, I quite agree. "'And yet, were you to put such forbidden fruit on my plate, "'I would be tempted to take a bite. "'Infusion you, you say, you for unknown? "'No, Miss Glover, for
6: Übermensch.'" Saturday,
4: 1st of June When I awoke, I had no inkling that this would be the most memorable day of my life. If anything, it promised to be only the most philosophical, for I spent the morning conjecturing about what Friedrich Nietzsche himself might have made of Infusion U. Being by all reports insane, the man is unlikely ever to form an opinion of Dr. Renaud's research, much less share that judgment with the world. Here is my supposition. Based upon my untutored and doubtless superficial reading of the joyful wisdom, I imagine Herr Nietzsche would be unimpressed by the uplift serum. I believe he would dismiss it as mere liquid decadence, yet another quack cure that, like all quack cures, most notoriously Christianity, the ultimate pater nostrum, prevents us from looking brute reality in the eye, and admitting there are no happy endings, only eternal returns— even as we resolved to redress our tragic circumstances with a heroic and defiant yes. By contrast, I am confident that, presented with a potion that promised to fortify her spirit, my cruel and beautiful Bodicea would have swallowed it on the spot. After all, here was a woman who took on the world's mightiest empire— leading a revolt that obliged her to sack the cities that today we call St. Albans, Colchester and London, leaving 70,000 Roman corpses behind. For a warrior queen, whatever works is good, be it razor-sharp knives on the wheels of your chariot or a rare Gallic elixir in your goblet. This afternoon, Mr. Pertius and I travelled in his coach to the Spaniard's Inn, where we dined with Dionysian Abandon on grilled turbot, stewed beef à la jardinière, and lamb cutlets with asparagus. Landing next in Regent's Park, we rented a rowboat and went down the lake. My swain stroked us to the far shore, shipped the oars, and, clasping my hand, averred that he wished to discuss a matter of passing urgency. Two matters, really,' he elaborated. "'The first pertains to my intellect, "'the second to my affections.' "'Both organs are of considerable interest to me,' I said. To be blunt, I have resolved to augment my brain's potential through the uplift serum, but only if I have your blessing. I am similarly determined to enhance my heart's capacity by taking wife, but only if my bride is your incomparable self. My own heart immediately assented to his second scheme, fluttering against my ribs like a caged bird. On first principles, I endorse both your ambitions, I replied. "'blushing so deeply that I imagined the surrounding water reddened with my reflection. "'But I would expect you to fulfil several preliminary conditions. "'Oh, my dearest Miss Glover, "'I shall grant you any wish within reason, and many beyond reason as well. "'Concerning our wedding, it must be a private affair, "'attended by only a handful of witnesses and conducted by Mr. Crother. "'Your kitty is a shyer creature than you might suppose.' "'Agreed.' "'Concerning the serum, you will limit yourself to a single injection of five centiliters.' "'Not one drop more.' "'You must further consent to make me your collaborator in the grand experiment. "'Yes, dear Edward, I wish to accompany you on your journey into the dark, "'feral, occult continent of Infusion U.' "'Is that really a place for a person of your gender?' I can tell you how Bodicea would answer. A woman's place is in the wild. Dear diary, It was not the English countryside that glided past the window of Mr. Pertius's coach on our return trip, for Albion had become Eden that day. Each tree was fruited with luminous apples, glowing plums and glistening figs. From every blossom a golden nectar flowed in great munificent streams. We reached Hampstead just as the Society was finishing its final match of the day. Standing on the edge of the grassy court, we watched Lady Harcourt make an astonishing shot, in which the generative sphere leapt smartly from the tip of her mallet, traversed seven feet of lawn, rolled through the fifth hoop, and came to rest at a spot not ten inches from the peg. The other ladies broke into spontaneous applause. Now, Mr. Pertius led me behind the privet hedge, and placed a farewell kiss, a kiss, on my lips, then repaired to his coach, whereupon Lady Witherspoon likewise drew me aside and averred she had news that would send my spirits soaring. Today I informed the others that, acting on your own initiative, you learned of the Society's true purpose, she said. Having already judged you a person of impeccable character, they are happy to admit you to our company. Will you accept our invitation to an evening of demon-baiting? Avec plaisir, I said. Amongst the scheduled contestants is a notorious workhouse supervisor whom our agents abducted but four days ago. Yes, dear Kitty, tonight you will see a simian edition of the odious Ezekiel Snavely. Take the field. My heart... "'Leapt up, though not to the same altitude occasioned by Mr. Pertice's marriage proposal. "'If Snavely were to fall,' I muttered, "'and if it were permitted, I would put the knife to him myself.' "'I fully understand your desire, "'but we decided long ago that the incision must always be made and dressed by a practised hand,' "'Lady Witherspoon said. "'The gods have entrusted us with their ichor, dear Kitty, "'and we must remain worthy of the gift.' Monday, 3rd of June Saturday night's tournament did not turn out as I had hoped. My bet Noire conquered his opponent, an abhorrent West End procurer. Dear God, what if Snavely continues to win his battles month after month? What if he is standing tall after the Benevolent Society has been discovered and toppled by the London Metropolitan Police? Will his apish incarnation gonads and all receive sanctuary in some zoo? In contrast to recent events in the arena, this morning's scientific experiments went swimmingly. We had no difficulty stealthily transferring the Erlenmeyer flask and the hypodermic syringe from the North Tower to my cottage. So lovingly did Mr. Pertius work the needle into my vein that the pain proved but a pinch, and I believe that, when I injected my swain in turn, I caused him only mild discomfort.' Herr Nietzsche calls humankind the unfinished animal, he said. If that hypothesis is true, then perhaps you and I, fair kitty, are about to bring our species to completion. At first, I felt nothing. And then, suddenly, the elixir announced its presence in my brain, my throat constricted. My eyes seemed to rotate in their sockets. A thousand clockwork ants scurried across my skin. Sweat gushed from my brow, coursing down my face like blood from the crown of thorns. Our torments ceased as abruptly as they'd begun, as if by magic. That is to say, by Überwissenschaft. And suddenly we knew that a true wonder-worker had come amongst us. Le Grand Rénon. Blessing his disciples with the elixir of his genius. Brave new passions swelled within us. Fortunately, I had on hand sufficient ink and paper to give them voice. Although we had severed ourselves from our simian heritage, Edward and I nevertheless entered into competition, each determined to produce the greater number of eternal truths in iambic pentameter. Whilst my poor swain laboured till dawn, and even then failed to complete his abyssiad, I finished the song of Bodicea on the stroke of midnight, two hundred and ten stanzas, each more brilliant than the last. Thursday, 6th of June And so, dear diary, it has begun. We have bitten the apple, cut cards with the devil, lapped the last drop from the Pyrian spring. Come the new year, my Edward and I shall be man and wife, but today we are übermensch, "'and Überfrau. "'Such creatures will not be constrained by convention, "'nor acknowledge mere biology as their master. "'We are brighter than our glands. "'Each time Edward and I give ourselves to carnal love, "'we employ such prophylactic devices as will preclude procreation. "'We do not disrobe. "'Rather we tear the clothes from one another's bodies "'like starving castaways shucking oysters in a tidal inlet.' How marvellous that, throughout the long, arduous process of concocting his formula, Monsieur Le Docteur remained a connoisseur of sin. How exhilarating that a post-evolutionary race can know so much of post-lapsarian lust. To apprehend the true and absolute nature of things, that is the fruit of Nietzschean clarity. Energies and entities are one and the same. Did you know that, dear diary? Wonders are many, but the greatest of these is being— Hell does not exist. Heaven is the fantasy of clerics. There is no god and I am his prophet. Fokken. That is the crisp, candid, middle-Dutch word for it. We fuck and fuck and fuck and fuck.
6: Wednesday, 12th of June.
4: An uberfrau does not hide her blazing intellect beneath a bushel. "'She trumpets her transfiguration from every rooftop, every watchtower, "'the summit of the highest mountain. "'When I told Lady Witherspoon what Edward and I had done with the elixir, "'I assumed she might turn livid, and perhaps even banish me from her estate. "'I did not anticipate that she would acquire a countenance of supreme alarm, "'call me the world's biggest fool, and spew out a narrative so hideous "'that only an uberfrau would dare, as I did, to greet it with a contemptuous laugh.' If I am to believe the Baroness Dr. Renaud also wondered whether infusion U might be capable of causing the consummation of our race. His experiments were so costly as to nearly deplete his personal fortune, entailing as they did lawsuits brought against him by the relations of the serum's twenty recipients for it happens that the beneficence of infusion U rarely persists for more than six weeks after which the Ubermensch endures a rapid and irremediable slide towards the primal. No known drug can arrest this degeneration, and the process is merely accelerated by additional injections. The subjects of Renault's investigations may have lost their Nietzschean nerve, but Edward and I shall remain true to our joy. We exist beyond the tawdry grasp of the actual, and the trivial reach of reason. As Übermensch and Überfrau, we are prepared to grant employment to every species of whimsy, but no facts need apply." something, June. The third meeting of the Witherspoon Academy was another rollicking success, though Miss Ruggles and Mr. Crowther would probably construct it otherwise. When Miss Ruggles inflicted her latest execrescence on us a piece of twaddle about her garden, Edward suggested that she run home and tent her flowers, for they are surely wilting from shame. She left the estate in tears. After Mr Crowther finished spouting his drivel, I told him that his muse had evidently spent the past four weeks selling herself in the streets. (laughs) His face went crimson, and he left in a huff. Thursday? Kitty's head swims in a maelstrom of its own making. Her stomach has lost all sovereignty over its goods, and her psyche has likewise surrendered its domain. Her soul vomits upon the page.
6: Another day,
4: ape hair on Edward's arms, ape teeth in Edward's mouth, ape face on Edward's skull.
6: A different day, ape hair in the mirror, ape teeth in the mirror, ape face in the mirror. Another day. They pitted me against him. In the mud. My Edward. We would not fight. They did it to him anyway. Necessary? Yes. Do I care? No. Procreation kills no day, on the sea, atonement at all, a timbre intended as atonement, I shall never say anything so clever again, I weep. (laughs) Hab, hab, ducks,
4: their adner their clean miserable milk, tilt oop
6: ill, up, up, oop oop oop
0: Personal journal of Captain Archibald Carmody, R.N. Written aboard HMS Aldebaran, whilst on a voyage of scientific discovery in the Indian Ocean. 20th of April, 1899. Latitude 1 degree, 10 minutes south. Longitude 71 degrees, 42 minutes east. I slept till noon. After securing Miss Glover's diary in my rucksack, I bid the watch row me ashore, then entered the Aborigines' cavern in search of silver. Despite Kitty's fantastic chronicle, I still think of them as Neanderthals, and perhaps I always shall. My friend was nowhere to be found. I proceeded to his mate's grave. Silver, nay Edward Pertius, sat atop the mound contemplating Kitty's graven image. I surrendered the diary to the gelded ape-man who forthwith secured it in his satchel. The instant I drew the Bible from my rucksack, Silver understood my intention. He wrapped one long arm around the sculpture, then set the opposite hand atop the scriptures. I'd never performed the ceremony before, and I'm sure I got certain details wrong. The ape man hung on to my every word, and when at length I averred that he and Catherine Margaret Glover were man and wife, he smiled, then kissed his bride. 22nd of April, 1899. Latitude six degrees, eleven minutes north. Longitude sixty-eight degrees, thirty-two minutes east. Two days after steaming away from Lydia Isle, I find myself wondering if it was all a dream. The lost race, the strange music, the bereaved beast grieving over his mate's effigy. Did I imagine the whole thing? Naturally, Mr. Chalmers and Mr. Bainbridge will happily corroborate my stay in Eden. As for the strange diary... I am at the moment prepared to give it credence, and not just because I spent so many hours in monkish replication of its pages. I believe Kitty Glover. The subterranean tournaments, the Demimon drug, the Uplift Serum, these are factual as rain. I am convinced that Kitty and Edward ventured recklessly into the terror incognita of their primate past, losing themselves forever in apish antiquity. "'My wife is an avid consumer of the London papers. "'If, prior to my departure, "'Brywood House had been found to conceal "'a cabal of sorceresses bent on reforming miscreant males "'through French chemistry and Roman combat, "'Lydia would surely have read about it and told me. "'Until I hear otherwise, I shall assume "'that the Hampstead Ladies Croquet Club "'is still a going concern. "'Making apes, curing demons,' Knocking balls through hoops. And so I face a dilemma. Upon my return to England, do I inform the authorities of debatable recreations at Briarwood House, or do I allow the uncanny status quo to persist? But that is another day's conversation with myself. 23rd of April, 1899. Latitude 15 degrees 6 minutes north. Longitude fifty five degrees thirty two minutes east. Last night, I once again read all the diary transcriptions. My dilemma has dissolved. With ubermensch clarity, I see what I must do and not do. In some nebulous future, when England's men have transmuted into angels, perhaps, or England's women have gotten the vote, or Satan has become an epicure of snowflakes. On that date I may suggest to a Hampstead constable that he investigate rumours of witchery at Lady Witherspoon's estate. But for now, the secret of the benevolent society is safe with me. Landing again on Albion's shore, I shall arrange for this journal to become my family's most private heirloom, and I shall undertake a second mission as well, approaching the Baroness. Assuring her of my good intentions and inquiring as to whether Ezekiel Snavely finally went down in the mud. For our next voyage, my sponsors intend that I should sail to Gevdos, southwest of Crete, rumoured to harbour a remarkable variety of firefly, the only such species to have evolved in the Greek isles. Naturalists call it the changeling bug, as it exhibits the same proclivities as a chameleon. These beetles mimic the stars. Stare into the singing woods of Gevdos on a still summer night, and you will witness a colony of changeling bugs blinking on and off in configurations that precisely copy horned Ares, clawed Cancer, poisonous Scorpio, mighty Taurus, sleek Pisces, and the rest. The greatest of these tableaux is Sagittarius. Once the fireflies have formed their centaur, the missile reportedly shoots away rising into the sky until the darkness claims it. Some say the components of this insectile arrow continue beating their wings until, disorientated and bereft of energy, they fall into the Aegean Sea and drown. I do not believe it. Nature has better uses for her lights. Rather, I am confident that, owing to some Darwinian adaptation or other, the beetles cease their theatrics and pause in mid-flight, thence reversing course and returning to the island, weary and hungry, but glad to be amongst familiar trees again, called home by the keeper of their kind.
3: Yeah, you tell me that wasn't fantastic. Come on. That was, honestly, I listened to that and I stopped halfway through. There's a certain point where, things, I don't know if you haven't heard it yet and you're listening to the kind of ending. There's a certain point in it where female character slowly changes. I stopped walking the dogs and I just stood there because I was kind of just so wrapped up in that story. And like I said, wrapped up in the production and narration. First class. If you can tell me honestly out there anywhere professional that's doing a better job than what that is there on Starship Sova, I'll eat my bloody ass. <laughs> there you go. That is Starship Sova's oral delights number one hundred and twenty-five. Hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, we're in limbo now. Big thank you. we just gonna wait and see. Hopefully, we'll bring some little reports through the through the the week when. Easter cons on you know everything hopefully will fingers crossed you never know but what I want to do if, it, if, it, if it's possible is to catch my reaction and other people's reactions you know like live about Starship if it made it if it didn't do you know what I mean and like I say it's still good entertainment if we do make it and we're crash and burn you know what I mean first hurdle <laughs> the first fence on the Grand National you know <laughs> already that <laughs> could be Starship's over Anyway, listen out, and I will see you next week. Until then, I would just like to say, good night from me.
0: Will our heroes
1: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of... Sssshh... Evacuation procedure.
0: Initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Air will be open in three, two, one.
5: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.